0: Oh, Welcome to a Bible study on the upcoming Sunday Gospel. This is a recording that I do of a weekly Monday night Bible study every Monday night at 730 at St. Timothy Catholic Church in Laguna Niguel. If you're interested in joining us live or via Zoom, please email me and let me know. We can get you plugged in, get you the link for that, or just show up in person. We'd love to have you. But without further ado, enjoy this recording of a Bible study on the upcoming Sunday Gospel. friends. uh, You're probably wondering why this is a pre-recorded or just me version of Bible study this week, and that is because uh, I recorded Bible study last night, and all of the audio was gone. Don't know what happened, just a really loud buzzing sound instead of the audio, so you can hear None of it, which is a big shame because Bible study was really great last night. So if anything, this should be an encouragement to you to please start coming in person, Monday nights at 7.30 here at St. Tim's. But if you were unable this week, I wanted to have something available for you because we no longer have the ability to join our study via Zoom. And so I wanted to have something for you uh, to dive into the gospel for this Sunday. So we're going to do what we normally do, read through it twice, and then I'll just uh, expound on a few things that came out last night, other things that may come to me in the moment but uh, just an opportunity for us to dive into the Word together. So, let's pray. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen. Good and gracious God, thank you for this day, for this moment. Open our hearts, ready them to receive your Word. Help us to set aside any distractions, worries, anxieties, to put our phones away. Whatever it might be, Lord, that could draw us away from just entering into an opportunity to be in conversation with you and to listen to how you are speaking to us through the words of sacred scripture. Anoint this time, we lay it at your feet and ask all this in your most precious name, Jesus. Amen. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Well, this week's gospel is the gospel for this upcoming Sunday, the 21st Sunday in ordinary time, and it comes from the gospel of Luke, chapter 13 starting in verse 22. Now, in this passage, Jesus is still on the way to Jerusalem. He's been preaching up in Galilee, and he's had this whole middle section of the Gospel of Luke where he is now just traveling on the way, doing different healings, giving different teachings and parables, and we have another episode of this. So, this happens a little bit after our Gospel from last week where Jesus is a cause of division. Uh, He does a healing. He calls people to repentance. He heals a crippled woman on the Sabbath. And then he gives some parables, the parables of the mustard seed and the yeast, and that come right before this, uh, to give you a little bit of context to show that uh, even in the smallest of efforts, uh, the kingdom of God can be known or can come about. And so that dynamic might be at play here in this passage as well. The audience here is clearly Jewish. It's his disciples and also a lot of Jewish listeners, uh, because there's some key indicators in here about that. And this is somewhere, again, on the way to Jerusalem. So, we'll read this twice through. First time through, just get an image for what is happening in this passage in your mind. Jesus passed through towns and villages, teaching as he went and making his way to Jerusalem. Someone asked him, Lord, will only a few people be saved? He answered them, strive to enter through the narrow door. For many, I tell you, will attempt to enter but will not be strong enough. After the master of the house has arisen and locked the door, then will you stand outside knocking and saying, Lord, open the door for us. He will say to you in reply, I do not know where you are from. And you will say, we ate and drank in your company and you taught in our streets. Then he will say to you, I do not know where you are from. Depart from me, all you evildoers. And there will be wailing and grinding of teeth when you see Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and all the prophets in the kingdom of God. And you yourselves cast out. And people will come from the east and the west and from the north and the south and will recline at table in the kingdom of God. For behold, some are last who will be first, and some are first who will be last. The gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, Lord Jesus Christ. So now, as always, we're going to read this passage a second time. And as we do, I invite you this time to listen and see if there's a particular word or phrase that strikes you for any particular reason. Try and remove from your mind anything else but the words as you hear them. And see if something sparks a train of thought, a memory, reminds you of something that you've been praying about, comes about organically, almost instantaneously. Take that as a sign that the Lord is trying to say something to you through that word or phrase and begin to reflect on it and ask, Lord, what are you trying to say to me through this? What are you asking me to do? Why is this standing out to me? Second final time through Luke 13, starting in verse 22. Jesus passed through towns and villages, teaching as he went and making his way to Jerusalem. Someone asked him, Lord, will only a few people be saved? He answered them, strive to enter through the narrow door. For many, I tell you, will attempt to enter, but will not be strong enough. After the master of the house has arisen and locked the door, Then will you stand outside knocking and saying, Lord, open the door for us. He will say to you in reply, I do not know where you are from. And you will say, we ate and drank in your company and you taught in our streets. Then he will say to you, I do not know where you are from. Depart from me, all you evildoers. And there will be wailing and grinding of teeth when you see Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and all the prophets in the kingdom of God, and you yourselves cast out. And people will come from the east and the west and from the north and the south and will recline at table in the kingdom of God. For behold, some are last who will be first and some are first who will be last. The gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, Lord Jesus Christ. So if you'd like to pause the video at this point, share with the people who are around you what stood with, uh, stood out to you and why you think it did, or you can write those things in the comments below. Especially if you have questions, write them in the comments below and I'll make sure to answer those Uh, throughout the course of this next week. As I said, Jesus is passing through different towns and villages, and he's teaching as he goes along, and he's on this journey toward Jerusalem for his last week of life here on earth, at least before he he resurrects from the dead, um, preparing for what we now celebrate as Holy Week. So verse 22 sets the stage. And then verse 23 just says, someone asks him, Lord, will only a few people be saved? Will only a few people be saved? Now, this kind of has, gives us an insight into the fact that this is a primarily Jewish audience or at least a Jewish questioner because this was something that Jews kind of thought, you know, they thought we're the chosen people of God. God reached out to us. He made a covenants with us. He revealed the law to us through Moses. Other nations are not like this. And so we kind of have an inside track. We have kind of a get out of hell free card. And that creates some problems. It creates some pride, some complacency, and this kind of idea that, all right, just because I'm Jewish and I do these certain things, then I'm automatically guaranteed to go to heaven. And we can get in that mentality too as Catholics. We can get in that mentality of like, okay, I'm going to Mass. I'm doing all the things I'm supposed to do. So that automatically means I'm going to heaven. Or I'm a good person, so that means I'm going to heaven. But the Gospels clearly spell out that unless you've made a decision about responding to what Jesus did for you on the cross and having faith in Him and doing specifically what He asked you to do as a result, simply being a good person or checking off a spiritual to-do list is not going to be enough, especially because God knows your heart. He knows your intention. And if you're only doing it because you think you're supposed to do it, but you don't really care about having a relationship with God or you're not really willing to let go of your own control or your own pride and let God be in control of your life, God knows that, and God is going to honor that at the end of your life. He's going to say, all right, you want to be in control. I'm not going to force you to do anything. You don't have to be with me if you don't want to. And so we have to be really cautious about how sometimes we can get in this mentality that I'm entitled or that I have a right to this. I shared last night at Bible study that, you know, my 15 years of ministry, I've often had very, I assume very well-intentioned people, but people who've been maybe in a church for a long time have told me some version of, you know, I was here when the church was built, or something like that, or my family built this church. And it it often comes up in points of contention. They're disagreeing with something. There's nothing against people who've been around to help build the church. They did amazing work. But when people quote that as a foundation for why they deserve certain treatment, or why they deserve certain respect, or why they should be seen in a certain light, that kind of speaks to this reality that we get stuck in our ways. We don't like change. We don't like criticism. We don't like Uh, Being told that maybe we have to put in more effort or change the way we're doing things, we get very set in our ways, especially the older we get. And we can be much more likely to respond with resentment, entitlement, complacency, pride, instead of this, all right, Lord, whatever you want, and kind of humbly come before him. That is why Jesus always says, receive the kingdom of God like a child, because a child is just forced to surrender. You know, they cannot do things on their own. They're forced to let go and be at the whim of their parents, and they're glad to do it most of the time. And we need to adopt more of that mentality. So the Jews kind of had this sense that they had the inside track. And so all the stuff that Jesus begins to say about like the the door is narrow and like not many people like implying like it's going to be hard, you know, you have to actually work and make a choice. They would have been like, yeah, of course, we know that. We absolutely know that. But they don't recognize that that's going to be later directed toward them. And that is going to be the really shocking part here. So, asks Jesus, are only a few people going to be saved? Uh, This, in some sense, is indirectly asking, what must I do to be saved? You know, what must I do to have eternal life or to inherit eternal life? People ask Jesus this question. Uh, I think one of the the jailers asks Paul this question in Acts chapter 16, um, or Peter, you know, uh, one of them, what must I do to be saved? And so, this is a fundamental question. And so, uh, Jesus answers that indirect question. And he um he does it by saying, strive to enter the narrow door. Strive to enter the narrow door. So that word strive in Greek is agonizethe. It's where we get the word agonize. It's often used by Saint Paul uh, to talk about like athletic competition or training when he uses these different analogies. In fact, he uses one, um, I think, in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 25, when he's talking about. Um, something to that effect. And verse 25, um, every athlete exercises discipline in every way. They do it to win a perishable crown, but we an imperishable one. So he uses athletic exercise and training, the agonizing training that goes with that as a comparison for the striving we need to have in discipleship. And even though that word strive didn't appear in English, that word Greek, agonizete, appears in that verse uh, as a reminder to us, That this is something that we need to be striving for, just like you would if you were training as an athlete. You know, every single day, every meal, every workout, every decision you make, that can impact the goal. That can impact what you're trying to achieve or what you're trying to do. And so, recognizing that it's not about worrying about other people, we have to worry about our choices. And that we have to make a choice and not pretend or assume that we're going to achieve salvation by association that it takes daily effort, a daily choice to say yes to God and never stop saying yes. So, strive to enter the narrow door. Recognize in this verse, the uh, door is open, but in the next verse, the door will be locked by the master. Okay, so there is also here kind of an implication of a decision point. You need to make sure you're taking the opportunity in the life that you have now to strive for sainthood, to strive to enter that narrow door, because eventually in the moment of judgment, when the end times come or when the end of your life comes, neither of which we know when will happen, that door is going to be shut. And we have to we have to be ready to uh, reconcile what side of that door that we're on. And hopefully we're on the inside. Hopefully we've done what we need to do to where that's a reality. Now, this should remind you of another passage. This should remind you of uh, the passage of the eye of a needle, which is in, I think, Matthew 19 and in Mark 10 where someone, uh, a rich young man comes to Jesus and says, you know, what must I do? Uh, and he says, you know, follow the commandments. And he says, all of these I've observed from my youth. And Jesus says, um, you're lacking in one thing. Go sell what that you have um, and give it to the poor. And the, the young man goes away sad for his many possessions. And then Jesus turns to the people around him and he says, um, it is harder for a camel to pass through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. And that analogy there, that phrase the eye of a needle, has to do with the way in which people would journey up to Jerusalem. Okay, they're not talking about a literal needle here. Um, Many scholars believe this has to do with the very switchback-oriented route up to Jerusalem. Jerusalem is up on a hill. The common trade routes to Jerusalem were up from these valleys and involved very narrow passages. And so if you're bringing a camel with goods to trade, which was very common, Jerusalem was an epicenter of trade and culture and sacrifice and all of these things. Um, you would uh, go up through this narrow uh, passageway, usually, or a series of passageways, at one point to get up to Jerusalem, and then the city of Jerusalem, uh, if it was not daytime, would be closed. And there were these very narrow passageways in the gates and in the walls um, to prevent the city from being swarmed by an army. And there were these little narrow cutouts in the wall that almost looked like a keyhole, and there were enough for one person or uh, maybe an animal to squeeze through, and The thought is that um, in order for someone to get their camel and goods into the city, uh, in order to get through the eye of the needle, the person would need to get the camel to kneel, which I'm not sure is very easy. Uh, I've never tried to convince a camel to kneel, but might be very difficult. Uh, Strip the camel of all its baggage and then push the camel through from behind. And that is an analogy for us of what it takes to be a disciple. that we need to make sure that we are getting down on our knees that we are stripping ourselves of all of our worldly attachments and desires for control. And that we are allowing ourselves to be pushed through. That we don't think bullheadedly that we can do this on our own or that we've earned it. That we need help from other people, from our brothers and sisters in Christ, from the intercession of the saints and our blessed mother, and especially from Jesus, without whom we have no salvation. We cannot earn it. Jesus won it for us on the cross and offers to us, it to us as a free gift. And so that mentality is how we are meant to approach this idea of discipleship and being ready. It's making sure we have that humility and that desire to follow Jesus, not because we think we're entitled to something, but because it's out of a lived response for all he's done for us. And then he says, uh, for many, I tell you, will attempt to enter, but will not be strong enough. I would argue that none of us are strong enough, but our strength comes from the Lord. Our strength comes from what the Lord is able to accomplish in and through us. And so, when we are really strong, as St. Paul says, I believe in 2 Corinthians, uh, for when I am weak, then I am strong. When I acknowledge my weakness, when I acknowledge my humility before God, that is when I am truly strong. After the master of the house has arisen and locked the door, then you will stand outside knocking and saying, Lord, open the door for us. So at some point, the master of the house, this is an image for Jesus, for God, Will arise and open the, and lock the door. Now, arisen meaning kind of has to do with this, like in the middle of the night mentality. It's not the same word for resurrection, but often in these parables about end times, it's about the master coming home at an unknown hour in the middle of the night, or something happening happening at an unknown hour in the middle of the night. You can think of the parable of the ten virgins in Matthew twenty-five um, that. The, the virgins, there's five wise virgins who brought enough oil for their lamps and five who didn't. And, you know, they don't know when the bridegroom is going to come back in the middle of the night. And so the five unwise ones are sent away to go get more oil so they don't remove, so they don't use up all the oil from those who brought extra, because that would be a huge disgrace or a shame to the, the bridal party. And by the time they get back in the middle of the night, the bridegroom has returned and they are left outside knocking. Let us in, let us in. We were here before. It's the same kind of mentality. So uh, we don't know when this is going to happen. But eventually, we're not going to get any second chances. You know We've been given every warning, every opportunity. We've been given the Bible. You know the, the Jews were given the law and the prophets. We've been given people around us, um, you know priests, family members, homilies, teachings, Bible studies, all these different things to remind us, like, hey, if there's something that is causing an obstacle between you and the Lord, something that is causing serious sin in your life, that you need to get rid of that. You need to root it out, because eventually, when that time comes, There's not going to be any second opportunity. You know, we've been given all the warning that we could possibly need. You will stand outside saying, Lord, open the door for us. The master will say to you in reply, I do not know where you are from. Imagine that. I do not know where you are from. Now, is this Jesus being harsh and saying, you know, get out of my face. I don't even know you. No. What he's saying is that we are inherently from God. We are created by God. That is our identity. But... When we sin, sin separates us from God. It makes us no longer recognizable or connected to God. We have this giant obstacle in our way. And so when Jesus is saying, the master is going to say, I don't know where you are from. He's acknowledging that those people who are left outside are those people who are rooted and sticking in their sin. Unrepented. Not willing to overcome it, not willing to let go or be humble or surrender to the Lord's will in their life. And so, in in essence, we divorce ourselves from our God given identity and we seek to identify with our own desire for control, identify as our own autonomous, independent people who want to make decisions for themselves, even though those decisions will lead to separating us from God. And you will say, We ate and drank in your company and you taught in our streets. Then he will say to you, I do not know where you are from depart from me all you evildoers. This reminds me of another passage. Um, I think it's in Matthew 7 verse 21. Yes, Jesus is speaking here in the Sermon on the Mountain. He says this, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the will of my Father in heaven. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? Did we not drive out demons in your name? Did we not do mighty deeds in your name? Then I will declare to them solemnly, I never knew you. Depart from me, you evil doers. Same phrase there. Depart from me, you evil doers. So recognizing just because we know about Jesus, just because we find ourselves in churchy environments and in churchy situations and in churchy conversations does not mean that we have made the decision to follow Jesus to root out sin and to say, God, I love you, and I want to accept the gift of salvation that you've given me. I want to turn away from sin in my life and acknowledge that you created me out of love. You have a plan for me, and it's better than anything that I could come up with for myself. And so I want to receive that. I want to respond to it. I want to receive the Holy Spirit into my life and allow the Holy Spirit to animate me to do whatever you called me to do, to share and spread your faith to people who need it, to live as your disciple in every facet of my life. We're very good at compartmentalizing parts of our life, spiritual life, personal life, work life, professional life, whatever it is. The Jews would see that as ridiculous. You know, the Jews saw everything as integrated. Your spiritual life was everything. Everything had a spiritual nature to it. Food, conversation, relationship, uh, your work, everything. And if we're not making a choice to bring God into every part of our life to really respond to him, and not just have kind of a comfortable cultural Catholicism that we've inherited from our parents or that we do because it's a good socializing thing for us. Um, You know, I think that's something that we have to be conscious of. I think we really have to be conscious of what are the types of things I participate in in my parish community. Do I go to Mass because I get to see my friends after? Do I go to the church events that tend to be more social so that I can have a good time and have good company? Those are not bad things. But if we're not going first and foremost to church to worship the God of the universe who died on the cross for us and to participate in intimate relationship with him in communion in the Eucharist, to encounter him in prayer, then the equivalent of that is basically just saying, well, I only want to hang out with my wife when, you know, we can go out and do something fun and see friends. But I don't really want to talk to her or have any intimate time with her otherwise. I just want to do the things that are fun. That's the equivalent of what we're saying to God. And in the end, that doesn't make a healthy relationship. That's going to lead to a divorce between us and our relationship with God. Because we're not holding up what it means to be in relationship with him. This depart from me, you evil evildoers, also shows up in Matthew 25, in the judgment of the nations, where Jesus is talking about... Um, you did not feed these least brothers of mine you did not give me drink when i was thirsty you did not clothe me when i was naked and whatever you did for these least brothers of mine you did for me and those who are faithful they come into you know the kingdom of heaven and those who are not he says depart from me We need to be ensuring that we are doing the things that Jesus asked us to do It's not enough to just be saved by association that will not happen and i think there'll be a lot of people Hopefully not myself included, but probably myself included who will be very surprised by the things that are said or shown to us at the moment of our judgment. And it's whether or not we've surrendered, we've been humble, we've we've not um, whether we have serious sin on our soul that we haven't repented from, like all those things will come into play. But I still think many of us will be very surprised by how unworthy we are of heaven. And there will be wailing and grinding of teeth when you see Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob and the prophets in the kingdom of God, and you yourselves cast out. Now, as I said, the Jewish audience probably would have been like totally on board with this until this verse. They would have been like, yeah, not a lot of people are entering. Like, you all need to get it together. We have the law, we know what we're doing, we do all our sacrifices, we do our our cleanses for purity, we make sure that, you know, we're doing everything that the Torah says but they're hypocritical and they do all these other things or have these—you know, this selfishness in their hearts or this pride about them that they want the attention of others and the accolades and popularity of having so many disciples. And so when Jesus says this, when he quotes these Jewish figures, patriarchs, that no Gentile would have really considered as important, the Jews' ears perk up and the prophets in the kingdom of God and you yourselves cast out. They're recognizing, and Jesus is operating here in their understanding of the Jewish afterlife, okay? Even though it may not have been the reality, this is how Jesus talks to them about the afterlife. And the Jewish conception of the afterlife up until this point was that everyone went to the same place, and there was kind of a good side and a bad side and a great chasm in between. And the bad side, the whole place was called Sheol, the underworld. The bad side was usually kind of uh, considered the place of wailing and gnashing of teeth, Gehenna. Um, You know the place that we would consider hell and on the other side was called the bosom of Abraham and that's where all the faithful went and there's a a particular parable of Lazarus and the Pharisee and the Pharisee has this poor man named Lazarus not Lazarus that Jesus rose from the dead, but a different Lazarus uh, poor man begging at his door for days and then Lazarus and the Pharisee both die And the Pharisee ends up on the bad side, and he sees Lazarus in the bosom of Abraham. And he calls across and asks, you know, please, please send someone to go tell my brothers, you know, that they need to be more charitable or whatever it is. And uh, the response is that your brothers have Moses and the law and the prophets. And if they don't have them, then they're not going to listen, even if someone should raise from the dead and tell them. And so this was their idea of the afterlife. Now, this is why in the Apostles' Creed, we pray that Jesus suffered under Pontius Pilate he died, he descended into hell and rose again from the dead on the third day. It's not that he went to hell to be separated from God. He can't be separated from God. He is God. He, it's operating under this Jewish understanding of the afterlife. And so the theological understanding is that Jesus went to the bosom of Abraham, proclaimed the gospel to them, and welcomed those people up into heaven. And then those who were on the other side were now cast into a permanent state of hell. Uh, whether or not that's the reality of what happened, whether or not those people were always in hell, And those people who were in the bosom of Abraham were just in purgatory waiting for the gates of heaven to be open. And Jesus uses these things as teaching points. Whatever it may be, it shows the Jewish people in this moment that they're not as special as maybe they thought they were. And then on top of that, he says in verse 29, And people will come from the east and the west and from the north and the south and will recline at table in the kingdom of God. That means Gentiles. People will come from all these different directions, all these languages and places. It kind of reminds you of the language of Pentecost, people coming from all these different cities to come together to hear the gospel proclaimed in their own language and to come and be baptized and be part of the kingdom of God. That was something that Jews would have been shocked by. That they are not the special chosen people anymore, that this is going to expand to include everybody. This is kind of the uh dynamic where you're the only sibling for a long time and then all of a sudden your parents have uh, another child and they get all the attention and you're like, what the heck happened here? You know, this is kind of the dynamic at play, but this is rooted in thousands of years of tradition already Where they have felt like they were the only child of God and all of a sudden He's talking about all these other nations who are going to be brought and they're going to inherit the kingdom of God before the Jewish people do They're going to recline at table that intimate type of setting That was something that was very valuable at this time in the Jewish sense of hospitality, having table fellowship. It's also very Eucharistic in its imagery and how Catholic, to be Eucharistic, to be Catholic, the word Catholic means universal. means, as James Joyce wrote, to be Catholic means here comes everybody. That... When Pentecost happened, it undoes all of the division of language and geographical boundaries, and it brings people together under one banner of the Holy Spirit, one banner of the universal church. That was what Jesus was foretelling, foreshadowing here, but the Jewish people and their conception of their role in salvation and God's, you know, choosing them and giving them this preferred status, this would have been very difficult for them to hear. And then he ends by saying, for behold, some who are last will be first, and some who are first will be last. It's hard to be humbled. It's hard to recognize the ways that we have done wrong, that we need to ask for forgiveness. We need to admit our own pride, let go of our own control, and also really be uh, assessing our spiritual life. You know, you may have been Catholic your whole life and maybe you've gotten to a point where you've gotten a little complacent or lazy in your faith. You've kind of had this, not conscious, but this unconscious assumption, like, I don't really need to be involved in this or that. Like, I know my faith and, uh, you know, I, I don't really need to do much more. And, that poses this kind of question that we really need to ask ourselves that I mentioned last night. Are you living your faith in such a way to get to heaven or are you living your faith in such a way just so you don't go to hell? Those are two very different things. And if we're living our faith just so we don't go to hell, that's a bare minimum type of mentality. That is a type of mentality that if I'm just saying, okay, I'm just going to operate in my marriage just so I don't get a divorce Hey, I'm, I'm going to talk to my wife, I'm going to do chores around the house, I'm going to be nice to her, but I'm really not going to put any other you know, effort whatsoever. Or if I want to live my life to have the most fruitful, loving marriage possible, then I'm going to be putting in a lot of effort and passion and romance and really being intentional and you know, taking my wife on dates and things like that. It's the same thing is true in our relationship with God. There's a whole lot more that's added on when we're really trying to live our life to be saints, to get to heaven. And so where do you fall on that spectrum? And how can we recognize that we have a responsibility to respond to the gift of faith and salvation that Jesus has given us? That when it comes to the end of our life, we're not just going to be allowed into heaven because we were nice or because we were, you know, we did good things or because we uh, went to, to mass every week or we put money in the collection. It's really about what was in our heart. How did we love And did that love stem from a response of complete faith and humility to Jesus Christ to say, I can't do this on my own. I can't earn my way into heaven. You did this for me. I was on a one-way ticket to hell from the moment I was born because of original sin. And you saved me. You got me off of that train. I could not do it myself. You know, imagine that. I imagine like something horrific like the Holocaust and all the people who were on these trains and on these different modes of transportation to go to these camps and imagining nothing you could do about it and then someone just plucking you out of there and saving you because of no effort that you had done even if you had been a huge sinner your entire life and you thought yeah I probably deserve something like this still would say you are worthy of love and worthy of having life and I want to save you from this and then instead of not just taking you off the train but then getting on that train and taking your place and watching them go off that is what Jesus did for you and for me No one talks more in the scriptures about hell than Jesus. This may sound, and last week's gospel may sound not very much like the Jesus that you know. And part of that has become because we have a very comfortable culturally Catholic view of Jesus as this loving hippie who kind of is just love everyone and just do good and be kind and you'll be great. And that is not what Jesus preached. Jesus asked for an intentional response to what he did and living it out in every part of our life to serve the poor to come together for sacraments, for worship, for prayer, to devote ourselves to learning the teachings of the apostles. That is what we are asked, and we will be judged according to those things. And so, as I said, this may not sound very Jesus-y, and you may be thinking of older times where the church used to use the idea of hell to scare you into belief, and that is not what we're going for here. The reason why it's important to be afraid of hell is not so that we'll just believe. The reason why it's important to be afraid of hell is because hell means we risk losing the love that God has for us, risk losing our identity as a beloved chosen child of God. And I don't wanna be ever in any position in my life where I think that I could die and be without that. I won't be able to be with all the other people I love in communion in that love in heaven with God. I don't wanna lose that for a second. That is why we should be very serious about our response to these passages that have to do with hell or have to do with judgment. Not because we're afraid of going there because we we just want to believe and do the right thing and go to heaven because that's what we're supposed to do and to compel us to do the right thing. No, because what that would mean would mean we would be losing the relationship that God has, as desired for us, that God wants for us. And that love is something so precious, so beautiful that to lose it would be the biggest tragedy in anyone's existence. And so this week, as you reflect on this gospel, I encourage you to think about how are you living your spiritual life? Just so you don't go to hell or so that you will strive to get to heaven? And the ways that this is difficult, recognize in the second reading too in Hebrews, God is calling us to discipline. He's calling us. He says, you know, uses the analogy of like a loving father disciplines their children. You know, we can't just let our children do whatever they want. They might get hurt. They might learn wrong things. They might, you know, whatever. God loves us so he sets up these rules, these boundaries, just like a sports game. You know, like you can't just give people a ball and say, go play this game and not tell them how. But when you give them the rules, they know what boundaries to operate within so they can safely play the game and achieve the goal of the game. Same thing is true in life. God doesn't want to impress us with rules. He wants to set us free so that we can live life well and meet the goal of life, which is to get to heaven, to be saints, to be with him for all eternity. And so, sometimes discipline will be hard. Strive to enter through the narrow gate, and recognize you cannot do it on your own. And also recognize when you do, you might be surprised by who else you see on the other side, because everyone is coming to the table, as it says in our first reading from the from the reading from Isaiah, that foreign nations will be coming, people we did not expect, people in your life who maybe irritate you, people who uh, you've really had it out with. You might be surprised when you enter through that door and they say, hey, remember me? I'm here too. And there may be people you can say that to as well. But to recognize in every single person is a soul. And every single person is a soul and their destination is heaven. And so in interactions that we have with other people, set aside the desire to be right. Set aside the desire to express your anger. Set aside the desire desire to um, look better or achieve more and recognize this person is a soul and they need to know the Lord. I am a soul and I need to know the Lord. And knowing him means living that out in every part of my life. So how are we doing that? Let's try and do a little bit better at that this week. And until next week, uh, I will see you in the Eucharist and we'll see you hopefully at Bible study next week. And hopefully my recording will work and it won't uh, sound like terrible buzzing in the audio. But I'm glad that this is available for you. Thank you for watching and let us pray. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Thank you, Jesus, for this opportunity and this time to dive into your word. Allow it to convict and challenge our hearts and help us to grow in holiness and discipleship, to respond in faith and not believe for a second that we have any any source or cause for entitlement, any source or cause for um, assuming that we are going to get into heaven by anything that we've done. This is only because you have died for us. And so help us to claim that and live in response to that gift each and every day. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Thank you so much for watching this Bible study video. It is so great to be with you. Uh, make sure you like this video. It helps other people find it, and it gets higher up on their queue, and make sure that you leave any questions or comments in the comments below. We'll make sure those questions get answered. Lastly, make sure you hit the subscribe button somewhere on this page where you're viewing this, or you can click on our channel to subscribe. That way you get a notification every time we have a new video, not just Bible study or our live stream masses, but other things that we'll create and record and put out there for you throughout the course of the year. Uh, So, so great to be with you and hope to see you in person on Monday nights at 730. There's nothing like the in-person experience to Bible study, Uh, so really want to invite you to come. All levels of faith background and experience with the Bible are welcome, and so we hope to see you there.